Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask again, as you are able and willing, um, to bow with me in prayer. We're going to go before the Lord, and we're going to pray this morning before we come to his word. So, uh, Father, we bow this morning as a reminder of who you are and who we are. You are the potter. We are the clay. Father, with your word open before us, we pray this morning that you would teach us. Lord, we have gathered here today to learn from you. I pray, Lord, that you would once again wake us up to the opportunity that's before us to be fed by your good word. Father, we thank you that you are a good and merciful high priest. Father, we thank you for your son whom you sent, who declared you. He was the exact representation of you, Father. When people wanted to know about who you were and what you were like, all they had to do was look at Jesus. Father, I pray for this people here gathered together that we would be a faithful and loyal people. You have done so much for us through Christ. I pray that the remainder of our days would be spent living for you. And you have granted to us now on the other side of the cross the desire, the ability, 
the power to live in that way. And so, Father, we say thank you. Teach us this morning. Show us what you would have us to know. Have us walk in these things that we learn. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, presidential political campaign slogans. I was thinking about that this week as I was reading the text, thinking about application, thinking about connecting, thinking about what's going on in our world around us. These, these political campaign slogans, they're, they're, they're meant to do a couple things, I believe. Uh, draw attention, uh, be memorable, uh, succinctly define the candidate, his or her platform, with the objective and goal of winning the people and securing the presidency of the United States of America. I, I was looking this week at, at some presidents in our history and some of the current candidates, in fact. I was drawn to a few that I'd like to share with you. Abraham Lincoln, 1864. Don't swap horses midstream. That's a good one. I like that one. Herbert Hoover. I, I, you know, Herbert Hoover, uh, 1928. You think about what was going on in the timeline of history in 1928. We were just about ready to get into what? Great Depression, right? That, that's the time frame. 1928, Herbert Hoover. I don't know how well this one would fly today. But here was the slogan, a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage. Four years later, Herbert Hoover campaign, this would be 1932, his slogan was, we are turning a corner. This was on the back end of the Great Depression. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1940. Better a third term than a third raider. Remember, he was running for a third presidential term at the time. Many of you are familiar with the phrase, Harry S. Truman, the buck stops here. Which, you know, when you look further into that, it's pretty amazing that, that he would come up with something like that because it really speaks to taking responsibility for one's actions. Dwight Eisenhower ran in 1952-1956 on the term, I like Ike. Remember that? John F. Kennedy had a couple different slogans. A time for greatness and we can do better. Ronald Reagan in 1980 had a question. His was a question. Are you better off than you were four years ago. We get closer to our current day. 1992. Bill Clinton, it's time to change America. Barack Obama in 2008, change we can believe in. Seems like the two of them had something in common. They're both speaking about this change. The three current candidates still running. Bernie Sanders, a political revolution is coming. Hillary Clinton, Hillary for America. Donald Trump, make America great again. You know, it seems we the people have bought less and less of the slogans over the years. A campaign slogan is a, is a declaration of, here's what I propose to do if I'm president. Here's what I'm going to do. 
A campaign slogan emphasizes the actual candidate by incorporating his or her name, i.e., Hillary for America. A campaign slogan emphasizes a particular era, like Hoover's in 1932, we are turning a corner. It's speaking of an era, something that was going on in that time. A campaign slogan emphasizes an ideal, and it seems lately that's been what a lot of candidates have been plugging into, an idea, an ideal. And of late, this buzzword ideal is change. Changing America. Of the three remaining candidates in this year's election, one emphasizes her name while the other two appeal to this ideal, a political revolution, a return to making America great again. If your hope is in one of these presidential candidates, you're going to be sorely disappointed in the days ahead. You see, history has proven that we've had some very good presidential candidates and some not so good. Here's a question that we can ask of any presidency. What decisions did this president make for the good of the people? Notice, not the good of just a certain group of people, but for the good of the people of these citizens of the United States of America. Attached to any decision-making for the good of the people must be evidence of morals, values, high character, godly truth. See, these are principles on which our founding fathers established this great nation. And we live in an era where morals and values and high character and godly truth have seemingly, to use the word in Jeremiah chapter 7, they've perished. Gone, it seems, are the days of principled leaders. Men of integrity. Men who take responsibility. Men who stand upon and advocate godliness for the future generations of America. You know, as depressing as it may look to scan the horizon of today's political landscape, searching for someone who might lead from a foundational understanding of serving under God, serving as a minister of God for the good of the people in this country. There's not a lot to choose from as you await the November election. And yet, the Scriptures provide us with hope, don't they? Regardless of who wins the next presidential race in 2016 this fall, regardless of how bad things might actually get, the follower of Jesus Christ has hope Because his leader has no need to be placed on the ballot. His leader is not trying to please people. He's not trying to win votes. He's not trying to raise thousands of dollars. The difference between Jesus and all the other presidential leaders in this country's history. Only Jesus has the power and the ability to make good on his promises. Jesus is the only one who has the power and the ability to make good on his promises. In other words, Jesus can be trusted. He can be trusted. You know, and I was thinking about this this week, and I looked just to double check. And it still says, right above, if you've got a $1 bill, you can see this. Right right above where it says one on the $1 bill, it it still says, in God we trust. To me, that's amazing. It remains on our currency. You know, and as I was thinking about it, it's almost as though it's here today. It's it's like mocking us today. Because, you see, we were a country that once trusted in God. We once held his name in high regard. And it appears we no longer do. So here's this voice of the past describing whom we once trusted. Better covenant, better promises. If I'm the campaign manager today for Jesus, and I'm not, but if I were, 
I read Hebrews 8 and I come away with better covenant, better promises. That's what I come away with. I didn't make it up. It's in the text. Better covenant, better promises. You see, the first covenant couldn't make good on the promises for reasons we'll soon see in the text. But the new covenant is a better covenant, and it contains better promises guaranteed by Jesus himself. You see, because this Jesus that we're learning about in the Scripture is a leader who makes good on his promises. And the big idea from Hebrews chapter 8 is that we have a better leader who offers a better covenant, one who is able to make good on his better promises. Key word is better. That's the key word throughout Hebrews, isn't it? It's what we've been learning. Anchored to someone better. In what sense is Jesus a better leader? That's the question I'd like us to look at as we read Hebrews 8. In what sense is Jesus a better leader? I'm going to give you three things. The text is broken down into the first five verses. We'll look at 6, 7, and 8, and then we'll look at 8 through 13. In this first section, in what sense is, is Jesus a better leader? They're all going to begin with a B, just to help us remember it, seem to fit and seem to work, and I'll unpack them. First of all, he has a better biography, a better biography. When we think about a biography, we think of who. And the question here is, who is this leader? Who is this leader? What, when a candidate is running for office, you like to know some things about him, don't you? At least we ought to know some things about him. What's his background? What kind of jobs has he held in the past? What's his family life like? Does he have any children in the picture? Does he have any red flags of leadership that we need to know about up front? What are his former colleagues saying about him? Is he competent to lead the nation? Is he an upright person with godly values and morals? Who is this leader? Well, up to this point in Hebrews, there's been a gallery of biographical evidence and details given about God's Son, Jesus. If you would, just turn backwards in Hebrews, if you've got your Bibles open, turn backwards to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verses 2 and 3. You see that, again, thinking about he's a better, this leader has a better bio. He's, these are all details about who he is and what's already been spoken up to this point. He's God-appointed heir of all things, chapter 1, verse 2. He's a creator. He's a brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of God himself. He's a sustainer of all things. He's the Savior who's purged our sins. He's the ascended Lord who is now seated at the throne of God, Hebrews chapter 2. He's the captain of our salvation through sufferings. He's our merciful and faithful high priest, Hebrews chapter 3. He's the apostle or the sent one and the high priest of our confession. He's God's son presiding currently over his own heavenly house, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 4, we see him as a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. In Hebrews 4, we see that he's tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. In Hebrews 4, we see that he's our helper in time of need to whom we can freely go to. In Hebrews 5, we see that he's deemed God's son. He's, he's deemed a priest forever. He's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In Hebrews chapter 6, he's our refuge in whom we have hope. He's our forerunner, the embodiment of our hope, serving as an anchor of the soul. In Hebrews chapter 7, he's a surety, which, which means he's a guarantor of a better covenant. He resides over an unchangeable, a permanent priesthood. He always lives to make intercession. He's an intercessor for us. And he's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. Have you had enough? I would say that's a better bio. You see, in what sense is he a better leader? We just, in, in bullet-like fashion went through Hebrews 1 through 7, which, which gives us all of these details about who Jesus is. And when we look at Hebrews 8, 1 through 5, the text is not silent on who Jesus is either and what makes him a leader worth following. You see, his biography is, is extensive and it's eternal in scope. 
His biography is continuous and it's flawless. He's the same, in fact. We haven't gotten to this, but I'll give you a preview. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as you look at Hebrews 8, how does the writer describe his better biography? Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. This is the the main point. The main point, another way to to think through that is this is the chief point. This is the central idea of what I've been talking about, says the writer. We have such a high priest. Go backwards a few verses to chapter 8, verse 26. You see the same language, for such a high priest was fitting for us. And he's saying here, This is the chief point. This is the main idea. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That reminds me of the language in chapter 1. It talks about Christ. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3. Verse 2 continues. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the true tabernacle. True, not here used in the sense of opposite of false, but true used here in the sense of the opposite of that which was a shadow, that which was a copy. This is true in the sense it's the reality, okay? The true tabernacle. Where is this true tabernacle? Who, who constructed this tabernacle? It says the Lord did, not man See, we have a leader who currently abides in the heavens at the right hand of the throne of God. In fact, if you keep reading the scriptures and you keep going to the end of the New, you're going you're gonna to find out there's, there's a lot to be said in the book of Revelation about this throne. And you're going to see there's a lamb on the throne. You're going you're to see that the one who died ends up ascending, being with his father, where he According to the next chapter in Hebrews, we're going to see that he's waiting to come back a second time, this time for salvation. Chapter 9, verse 28 says of Hebrews. So we think about a biography. We think about what the writer is getting at here in chapter 8. He gives us two more pieces of information, not new pieces necessarily. High priest who's seated at the right hand and a minister, a minister. Uh, The the word here is an interesting word. It's not your your typical uh, word that you would see for minister in the New Testament. Um, It has in mind uh, bringing, uh, talking about the people, worker of the people, for the people. This is someone who is uh, at heart a servant of the people. And we think about our representatives here in this country. Are they not to be just that? Servants of the people? Ministers of God? Serving the good of the people. Well, while he became like one of us for a time, that's Jesus, he's now back with his Father in heaven, and according to Hebrews 9, 28, he's going to appear a second time, it says, apart from sin, for salvation. Now, some of you might be sitting here, and you might think that a better leader needs to be among his people. He he seems too far removed to be the leader for today. If he's in the heavens, he's too far removed. I want you to hold and suspend that thought because he's actually closer than he's ever been. Having poured out his Holy Spirit in our heart. And yet he's operating from the heavenlies. And this, this is where it gets really good. You see, his high priestly ministry before the throne of God is the best place to advocate for us. In fact, he's called an advocate in the Scripture. An advocate. We think about that that idea of an advocate. When we sin, the Bible says that we have an advocate before God. That's 1 John chapter 2. An advocate before God. And so we ask the question, where is he? He's at the right hand of God's throne. He's interceding for us in the heavenlies. He's in the best position there to minister to us here. Spiritual warfare gets played out here, but it's affected there in the heavenlies. You see, he's a better leader and has a better biography. 
no other leader has been able to assert leadership in the heavenly realms and the earthly realms simultaneously. As for Jesus being a high priest, look at verses 3 through 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. This is a a, a reminder. Go backwards to chapter 5. It says there in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay? Pretty much repeated. Under the banner of qualifications. Part of his qualification as as a priest here on earth is that he must offer both gifts and sacrifices. Thus... Or therefore, in the text, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Here's the inferred question in the text. What does our better leader have to offer? What's he have to offer? I hope as you sit here today, you have answers to that question. Because he has much to offer. And we're going to see this develop more as we keep going. The writer will provide a very clear Definitive answer before chapter 8 closes, but he answers first by explaining why, if Jesus were still on earth, he could not be a priest. He could not be a priest, first of all, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. That's what the text says. In other words, they were offering these gifts because the law stipulated them to be the ones to offer the gifts. Jesus was, remember, appointed high priest by whom? By God himself. Secondly, because earthly priests, the text says, serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, okay? The better leader that we have in Jesus is the reality of all the copies and shadows here on earth. He's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, the substance. He's the substance of what these other things on earth point to. And thirdly, because the earthly priests are offering a plurality of gifts and offerings. A plurality. Year after year, they're offering these gifts. See, the better leader that we have in Jesus, he offered, listen, he offered himself as the one sacrifice for all time. He had no need to keep up the sacrifices for his one-time sacrifice was sufficient to remedy man's sin problem. And so when you look at the biography of Jesus, you see that he is better. He's far superior than any earthly priest. He's holy. He's fully God and for a time fully man. He had no need to keep up the sacrifices for his one-time sacrifice was sufficient. You see, this Jesus was one who was fully tempted as we were, and yet he was without sin. He's appointed high priest forever By God the Father. We have a better leader in Jesus. The text makes this abundantly clear. But in addition to a better biography, what else is there that makes this leader better? I want you to see from the text that he has a better covenant to offer. So verses 6 through 8, we have a better biography here. I want us to see that we have a better big picture. A better big picture. You know, this is a question that doesn't center necessarily on the who, but on the what. What is this leader up to? Is he maintaining status quo, or does he have any vision for the days ahead? The leader who ministers on our behalf before God's throne, he sees the big picture. He sees the big picture, and he's operating always and only for the good of his people. We see in the text in verse 6, but now. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Notice he's a minister. That's the who. He's a minister who now has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. You see, candidates running for office, they're oftentimes grilled with questions about their particular platforms, aren't they? What do they believe, for example, about certain subjects pertaining to their role as president? How would they handle foreign affairs? What's their view on abortion? Do they support God's definition of marriage or not? What's their stance on education, homeland security? The questions just keep on rolling. You see, candidates who have no big picture 
of why they're running for presidency will oftentimes fail. If their biography doesn't match up, next in line seems to be their big picture. Can they lead the nation through the ups and downs over these next four years? Can this person really be trusted with the affairs of a nation? Well, our leader has obtained a more excellent ministry. A minister, a worker on behalf of the people, a servant-oriented leader with a more excellent ministry than that of any earthly high priest. You see, because they served as mediators for a time between God and man, offering sacrifices, plural, gifts, plural, on the altar. Jesus is the one who mediates this better covenant. He's the one who guarantees its promises. The writer addresses the need for a better covenant in the text, and he gives two reasons He gives two reasons a better or new covenant is needed. Here's the first one. If the first covenant had been without fault, no place would have been sought for a second. If the first one was faultless, there wouldn't have been anyone seeking, searching for a second one. But notice also the beginning of chapter 8, verse 8. It says, because finding fault with them, God says... So, so, so listen, so there's fault with the first covenant in what manner, in what way? In that it was unable to save completely, right? And the fault with people of God, in what manner? They were unable to obey completely. I like what Wes says in his commentary. He says, the true sense of failure lay in the character of the people, not in the law, which was holy, righteous, and good. However, Expositors keeps going with that thought and idea and says, it, the law, was faulty, inasmuch as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. Do you get that? There were two things at work here. And I was reminded as I'm reading about this, I'm reminded of the passage in Romans 8. In Romans 8, listen to these words. These are wonderful words that connect right here. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak, in what manner? Weak through the flesh. (laughs) It was weak through the flesh. God did what it couldn't do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us according to the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful news. So you see, in the first covenant, we couldn't fulfill God's law. We couldn't. In this new covenant, because of our new, better leader, we now can fulfill God's law. And we're going to fill in the blanks a little bit more as we keep going. So our leader comes up with a way. This is wonderful. Our leader comes up with a way to see that we can actually fulfill his righteous requirements. We tend to call this God's redemptive plan. And it's been... Listen, it's been in place, this redemptive plan. It's been in place from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. Now, I don't know about you, church, but to me, that's a big picture leader. This has been in place from before the foundation of the world, his redemptive plan. The First Testament couldn't atone sufficiently for sin, But there came along a second testament, a new and better testament, mediated by Jesus himself, that completely atoned for man's sin. And so instead of keeping with the first testament, which couldn't save anyone, instead of sticking with the covenant that was perpetually disobeyed by the people, because, you see, they had no power to obey the laws written down, there was this better new covenant. It comes on the scene, initiated in the person of Jesus, God's only son. He comes to provide a better big picture for the people, showing them that this world is not their final home, but a heavenly home not built with hands awaits his people. You see, the big picture of God's redemptive plan includes a savior and a mediator, and that's Jesus. And as we'll see in just a minute, that big picture also included the sending of the promised Holy Spirit into our hearts to dwell among us forever. Jesus spoke often of a better big picture, didn't he? Teaching the people to invest their treasures where? In heaven. Not here on earth. 
He preached about the kingdom of heaven and was often reminding his disciples about things yet to come. Isn't it interesting that in the description of the Holy Spirit, one of his roles, one of his ministries is to remind people of things yet to come? That's one of his roles. Read John 14, 15, and 16. You discover some some very interesting things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even the epistles, Paul and his writings, many of his writings, they direct our attention to the eternal things, the things not seen over and above the things here in this world. And so we have a leader who makes good on his promises. He has a better biography, and he has a better big picture in mind. Listen, he has eternity in mind, not a four-year term. God has an eternity, and through his son, he's given to us a big picture. Let's look at the third component of the text. What else contributes to Jesus being a better leader? It's not just a better biography. It's not just a better big picture. But here's the third. Better benefits. Better benefits. And here we want to ask the question, what does this leader have to give? What's he have to give? When looking at a candidate to serve as president, you want to have some level of certainty about the benefits that he brings to the people of the country. Will his leadership benefit the people of the country, move them forward, spur them onward as a citizen of the nation, create within them a greater sense of hope for the future? Does the leader have anything to give his people? Does the leader that the writer of Hebrews is speaking about, does this leader have anything, church, to give his people? I hope we are starting to fill in some blanks already. I hope we're we're all sitting in the chairs putting in some answers to that question. Because what follows here is going to give us without a doubt, yes, he has very, very much given not just some things, but he has given himself, as we'll see. What follows in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And the writer uses one of their own Jewish prophets to show the need for a better covenant. Remember, for those that were wavering on First Testament or New Testament, Jeremiah's voice here is blazoned over the loudspeaker of the day, if you will. The writer calls on Jeremiah, some 600 years removed from the first century, to witness to what wasn't working, what wasn't working, the first covenant, and also witness to what was desperately needed, a new covenant. As I read it, I want to point out three benefits, three better benefits. I'm going to give you three that are in the text that are included in this new covenant. They seem connected. And they seem to increase or crescendo in significance as we move through the passage. This leader who mediates and guarantees the new covenant has much to give his people. Benefits abound from a wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's read these verses. Because finding fault with them, verse 8, Hebrews 8, follow along with me. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fa- their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. And, and it says here, From the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That is fantastic. Just a reminder in in simple terms of a covenant. Since we're talking about a new covenant, remember we talked about a covenant during the Lord's Supper. A covenant is an agreement in its simplest terms. It's an agreement. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 8 and 9, 
God says through Jeremiah that I will make a covenant. With whom? Who's he going to make it with? Israel and Judah. His people. I want you to note that the first covenant and the new covenant are both made with Israel. I like what Weiss says here in his commentary. He says, Israel is the chosen channel through which he brings salvation to the human race. I was reminded of Romans chapter 1, which talks about, he's talking about the, the wonderful joy of the gospel. First for the who? Jew, then for the Greek. They're the principles right there in Paul's letter in chapter 1. But he goes on, Weiss says, the New Testament is, you know, speaking on the other end of this First Testament, the First Testament consists of a system of sacrifices, he says. And the New Testament is a sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, at the cross, actual in its character, efficacious in its merits. He says the First Testament began in Genesis 3.21. What happened back in Genesis 3.21? Fall, sin, yeah. Okay, sin comes on the scene, right? The First Testament begins then, It ends at the cross. The New Testament began at the cross, at the cross, at the cross. And it's an everlasting one. How do I know that? I didn't make it up. Look at at Hebrews 13, 20. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So, The New Testament begins with the cross. It's an everlasting covenant. Christianity refers to, we know Christianity referring to the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. And so we says the New Testament made Christianity possible. The saints of the church age, the church age we think of Acts 2, Pentecost, right? The saints of the church age are saved through the blood of sacrifice, which was offered under the New Testament. Church, that's good to know and to recognize You see, connecting this better covenant with us, now some 2,000 years removed from the cross of Christ, realizing that God made his covenant with Israel and that we are the, listen, we are the gracious recipients, beneficiaries of this, this same covenant blessing. It's incredible to think about it. When God in verses eight and nine speaks about making a new covenant, by the way, the word make there is not your general word in the Greek, poeo, to make. But it's the word soon to let oh, which has in mind consummating or concluding. See, he is making in the sense of concluding. This is consummation. This is it. This is the covenant. And Hebrews 13, 20 elaborates and says it's an everlasting covenant. He's making a new covenant. He specifically says that it's not going to be according to the covenant that he made with his fathers, the fathers back in, the, in Egypt. In other words, it's going to be, listen, it's going to be a new covenant not like the old one. And he gives good reason why he's not building onto the first one, tweaking it. It's not what he's doing. He says in the text, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. In other words, what happened? They disobeyed. They disobeyed. And they were sent into exile, weren't they? You see, they were unable to completely obey the first covenant. They were powerless to keep the law and the first covenant while instituted by God himself. It was inadequate to save the people from their sins. It could stir sin up. It provoked them, as Romans 7 talks about the role of the law. It covered over it for a time, but it never sufficiently provided for the sins of the people. So God, through Jeremiah, in verses 10, 11, and 12, here in Hebrews chapter 8, He provides three benefits of this new covenant to come. Three benefits. And I say to come because when these words were prophesied, Christ was still approximately 600 years removed from being born in Bethlehem. We says, even in Jeremiah's time, the insufficiency of the first testament was recognized and the need of a new one proclaimed. Think about that. Jeremiah realized as he's speaking from God, God through Jeremiah, right, the prophets, he's speaking through his prophets. And here he's speaking 
that the First Testament was insufficient back in Jeremiah's day. Let me give you the three benefits. I'll give you the benefit, and then we're going to read the verse and unpack it just briefly. Benefit number one, the new covenant writes God's laws in the mind and on the heart. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And just as as an asterisk here, I want to also read the last part of that. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, if there's one thing that stayed the same from, from time previous to this to time forward, this principle is always true. You shall be my people. I will be your God. You know, we, we can trace, you know, interesting study. You just go through the scriptures and see how many times God says that. You will be my people. I will be your God. And so this new covenant is still going to have that element to it, but it's going to be new in the sense it's going to be different. It's not going to be like the old one. It's going to be a relationship of another kind, isn't it? Greater, better relationship. The New Covenant writes God's laws in the mind and on the heart. The First Covenant brings to mind the tablets of stone, right? And the New Covenant writes on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul was a minister of this New Covenant, wasn't he? Which was a covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. It kills in the sense that it has no power to save. It just... It just continually keeps bringing to the surface sin. (laughs) And the law couldn't do anything about it. But that's why it's such a wonderful thing to know that Paul writes in Galatians that the law was intended to serve as a tutor. Tutor to take us by the hand to the one who alone can save us, and that's Christ. One of the benefits of the new covenant is that God puts his laws in our minds and on our hearts. Listen, here's what this means. There's now no excuse for man. There's no excuses. No excuses. God's wrath, the Bible says, is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Why? If you read Romans 1.18 and then read into 1.19, it says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. What may be known of God is manifest in them. His laws are written within us now in the new covenant. Tablets of stone are outdated. They're no longer needed. That's the point of 8.13 in Hebrews. With God's laws now in us, we no longer need an earthly priest who back in the first covenant would enter once a year behind the Holy of Holies on the other side of the veil on our behalf to atone for sins which was never done completely, thus the need to enter in year after year after year. Benefit number one is that the new covenant is written. It writes his law in our mind and on our heart. Here's benefit number two of the new covenant. The new covenant provides the power to obey. The new covenant provides the power to obey. Where'd that come from? Look at verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. One of the reasons for a new covenant had to do with his people disobeying the first one, perpetually, ongoing, habitually. If you read through the Old Testament, you see a cycle of disobedience. They were given God's laws but were powerless to completely obey them. If you broke the smallest part of the law, in fact, you were deemed a law breaker. So the new covenant provides the power to obey God now. But I ask, in what way? Surely it's not advocating that we will always obey God now on the other side of the cross. One honest assessment of our lives will dispel that idea. I don't believe for a moment any one of us can take a a grand assessment of our lives and think for a moment that on the other side of the cross, which has been the entirety of our lives, that there's now no sin. So in what sense does he provide the power to obey him? 
Listen, we need to understand that as long as we have these earthen tents, sin will still continue in word and deed and thought, motive. The good news of the new covenant, though, is that we have been given the promised Holy Spirit who dwells within us, and He is always pointing us to Jesus. He's always guiding us where Jesus would want us to go. And in the event we do sin, here's the wonderful benefit of the new covenant. Because Jesus, our forerunner and captain of our salvation, has already gone before us and has paid the necessary price for our sin. See, he became the curse for us, the Bible says, when he died on the cross, canceling the debt we owed, nailing it to the cross. The hymn we sing, sin had left a crimson stain. But what did he do? He washed it white as snow. They shall all know the Lord now. The text says about this new covenant. How so? Thanks to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this new covenant. He's poured out in Acts chapter 2, and he's alive and well in these last days, which means that the new covenant, listen, the new covenant is marked by followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. Did we hear that? The new covenant is marked by followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is proclaimed by God, embodied in Jesus, and inaugurated through the Holy Spirit. I'll say that one more time. The new covenant, the new one, is proclaimed by God, embodied in Jesus himself, and inaugurated through the Holy Spirit. Here's the third benefit of the new covenant. The new covenant offers forgiveness of sins. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Out of the three better benefits given by the new covenant, this one by far is the one that should result in unending praise on our end. You see, forgiveness of sin, church, is fundamental to the New Testament. Weist writes, under the First Testament, sins were brought to mind every year by reason of constant repetition of sacrifices. Under the New Testament, sins are forgotten for the reason that they have been paid for. God remembers them no more. And it's here where I'd just like to turn to a few passages. This is not exhaustive in any shape or form, but, boys, I got to this third better benefit Uh, The Lord directed my attention to Psalm 103. Listen to this. Just these few verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his what? Forget not all his benefits. And he goes on. He gives a bunch of benefits. What's the first one? Who forgives all your iniquities. Forgiveness. That's at the top of the list. Look at verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 44 verse 22 says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Some of us maybe need to hear that this morning. God says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. I've bought you back. I've forgiven you. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says that in him, that's Christ, this better leader we're talking about, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of his grace. And we see in the course of our life, as we're living our lives here even yet today, in the course of this new covenant, 1 John 1, 9 is so helpful because it says there that if we confess our sins, it says he's faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins. Not only forgive us our sins, but what is he also faithful and just to do? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, in this new covenant, God writes his laws in our minds and on our hearts. He provides the power now to obey his laws through the promised Holy Spirit, and he does the unthinkable. He forgives our sins. 
the very thing that separated us from God. God reconciles, that's another word in, in the New Testament that, that comes to mind. He reconciles us to himself through his son Jesus at the cross. And I believe that's why the hymn writer can say, even through tragedy, even through trials, it is well with my soul. For he says, my sin. And he stops and interrupts himself and says, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. What's the glorious thought, church? My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's how we can say it's well with our soul. You see, the cross is the place to return. The cross is where Christ died. It's the place where we were finally set free to live. The cross is where Jesus took our sin upon himself in the flesh, canceling our debt, charging it to his account, and crediting us with his perfect righteousness. The cross, church, is where we stand forgiven. It's where we stand forgiven. The first covenant has been made obsolete. It's old in its usage. It's useless now. It's outmoded. It's no longer needed. For a time, it did serve God's purpose. But now that the seed has come in Jesus Christ, our better leader, we have been given a better new covenant. We have a leader who is worthy of all praise. This leader has a better biography. This leader has a better big picture in mind for sure, no doubt about it. And this leader has secured better benefits. They are long-term benefits. They're everlasting benefits to those who place their faith and trust in him. And many of the nation's presidential leaders have always promoted a voice of what they bring to the table. The general pattern is something like this. In whatever their slogan, whatever their motto, it's declared in this way. Here's what I will do. Church, we serve a leader in Jesus who desires and has made possible change in the inward parts. We serve a leader in Jesus who empowers us forever to walk as we should walk. We serve a leader in Jesus who does what no other leader can do. He forgives sin. You see, the people of the day thought that was blasphemy, didn't they? Remember that? Jesus is like, which one's greater? You may say, forgive sin, or you may say, take up your mat and walk. It's both of them. <laughs> right before their eyes. He forgives sin. Hebrews 8 says that we have a better leader who offers a better covenant. He's one who is able to make good on his better promises. And these presidential candidates will continue to cry out, here's what I will do in these days ahead. But I want you to know this morning from Hebrews chapter 8 that we serve a leader in Jesus who shows with his nail-pierced hands and feet, here's what I've done. It's finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for that wonderful transaction that occurred at the cross. We thank you for this new covenant. We thank you for the life that you've given to us through your death, the death of your son. We thank you that he took our place. He became our substitute we thank you that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of yours in Christ Jesus. Father, what a list of better benefits in the text. The greatest of these being that we've been forgiven. We are a forgiven people. Father, that, that translates to today to help us be reminded that the sacrifice that was paid, that one-time sacrifice that took care of our sin, we have no need today to walk around hanging our head in guilt. You've paid for our sin.
the penalty, the curse. You, you took that upon your son. He bore our wrath. He bore our shame at the cross. You've forgiven us. We are a forgiven people. That's part of the wonderful news of this new covenant. And Father, we just rejoice in that news, and we want to say thank you for sending your only son to live and to die, to grant us life everlasting. And may we not only live this new covenant life out in the power of your spirit as it's intended to be lived out, but I pray, Father, that as we do so, we would be able to be witnesses to Jesus as we've been called to be in this world in the days that you've given to us. Not a one of us here know how many days remaining that is. So help us, Lord, to steward each day for your honor and your glory. We thank you that you have, through your Son, given to us a better covenant established on better promises. May we be forever grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.